to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday morning messages. Today, Mark Daguerre continues our series in Hebrews, sharing from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And now, here's Mark. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so we're going to be opening our Bibles to the book of Hebrews today. We're going to be studying in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, this is one of those chapters that can be confusing, because if we're not paying attention to the details, we may think that this is speaking about having to do a certain amount of good deeds in order to get to heaven, and that we have to check off all these required boxes so that the scales of justice will lean in our favor, and we may get caught up in thinking that uh, this is going to be a deciding factor on Judgment Day, and that hopefully we'll get to enjoy the promised land, because it seems to mention that some people will come short of making it. Now, some of the issues uh, in misunderstanding that when the Bible says coming short, it's because it doesn't mean that they haven't attained a certain level. Like saying, you know, you tried, but you just didn't try hard enough. But thanks belongs to God because he purposefully intertwines multiple reference points so that we would be able to find out what he requires from us. The first thing we're going to do here uh, as our uh, reference point, we're going to look at verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. These verses address an entire generation of Israel's children. They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They carried with them history. They had the knowledge of the one true God. But for centuries now, they had been prisoners in a land uh, that at one time was actually saved by their ancestor Joseph, who was the second in command over the entire nation. Eventually, though, as time went on, Israel accepted the paganism and the lifestyle of Egypt. The stories of the past had now faded into memories. Egypt had forgotten about Joseph, and Israel had forgotten about God. Then came bondage to sin. Once they became slaves to Egypt, they couldn't get out of it. It took a long time, but eventually their captivity caused them to cry out to God. And then God answered their prayer. See, he took this man, this broken man, and then he provided him with a wooden staff and the word. Israel and Egypt would now have a front row seat to see the wonderful works of God they would have this first-hand account of all the miracles. They had seen the water of the Nile changed into blood. They had seen their country overflowing with frogs. Imagine having to be careful when you're stepping outside because there are so many frogs that you will just step on them and squish them. I can't even fathom the thought. They had gone through the ten plagues that God used to set them free from Egypt. And as they began to walk away from that world, 
they came to the seashore and this, this decision had to be made about which direction they were going to go. All the while, Pharaoh and his soldiers are coming up from behind them, coming after them in order to enslave them again. And that's how we are. You know, we get caught up in sin and we are bound and enslaved by it. Eventually, some will cry out to God and he releases them from that bondage. And as they are walking away, sin keeps chasing after them, wanting to enslave them once again. Israel had come to this place where they couldn't go to the sides because the mountains were there. They couldn't go back because the enemy and Pharaoh were there ready to capture them. They had no place to go. And then God opens up the sea right before them and they walk through it as it were dry ground. Then in one fell swoop they witnessed the destruction of Pharaoh and his army. This was a life-changing event. Going through this, they should have caused even the most hard-hearted person to bend the knee to the Almighty. And God continued to walk before them. When the sun set, they followed a pillar of fire by night, and the Shekinah glory of God would just descend over the tabernacle so that they would know that God was there. Israel had seen all of these miracles as God was leading them to this promised land. The promised land was a place that God had provided for them. They would have everything that they needed to live the abundant life and to have the freedom to worship the one true God. At this point, we would all probably be saying with them, like, yes, I believe, yes, God is powerful. But then that jaggedness of humanity creeps in. And after just a few days in the desert, they begin to complain, accusing God of bringing them out there to die. But every time that they are in need of something, God provides. So what do they do in return? They would rebel. Now, before we get too hard on them, let's just remember how some people have reacted during the, this quarantine, right? And that we're going through right now. You know, these, Isra- these Israelites, they were in a desert, okay? They didn't have the opportunity to go and buy copious amounts of canned food and water. And they were not hoarding the toilet paper, okay? So we gotta cut them some slack. Eventually though, they arrived near the land that was described as overflowing with milk and honey. The land of Canaan, the promised land that God had promised for them. They chose 12 men, one from each of the tribes of Israel. And even though they weren't fully committed yet, they sent them out to examine if the promise of God was real. So these 12 men had gone throughout the area to see what it was like. And sure enough, the land was like a cornucopia of fresh and the most delicious food. Even the fruit was larger than normal. So they were able to taste what God had promised them. And even though they hadn't committed themselves yet, God allowed them a taste of the fruit so that they could see that it was real and what they had told or what he had told them was actually true. And they were right there. They actually brought some of that fruit back 
to those that had stayed behind so that they could see it and taste it for themselves. It's like, come and taste that the Lord is good. And with the evidence right in front of them, feeding on it, enjoying its wonderful flavor, ten of the twelve men were fearful and didn't even want to step foot in that place that God had already given them. You know, as an outsider, we can be tempted to to look at this event and to think that they should have just listened because, hey, I sure would have. But how many of us can honestly say that we have never failed to believe God at his every word? I can't speak for anyone else, but I can sure speak for myself, man. I fail daily. And so the Lord had been preparing the children of Israel for this very moment a time when they would trust him and be ready to acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. And he made it so easy for them to believe. All they had to do was leave Egypt, turn from this evil, and follow him. And right from the beginning, God had made it very clear that they wouldn't be able to do anything for themselves. Think of it. They had been prisoners for centuries, and they never got out of it. It was an impossible situation to get out of. And yet God freed them in this this most spectacular way imaginable, so that he alone could get the credit for it. And yet the people kept looking to Moses more so than to God. God would bring them to places where the only way they could get out was if God himself intervened. And they kept looking to Moses another man. They had seen the miracles and yet they didn't trust God. Sure, they believed in him, but that's not the same as trusting him. When God told them that the land was theirs and they just had to go in and take it, their lack of belief is what prevented them from receiving it as a gift. They just didn't believe him. They were looking among themselves to try to understand how they would do it. How are we supposed to fight against these giants? We're like little grasshoppers compared to these guys. The same God that took them through the Red Sea and fed them in the desert was going to deliver this land into their hands. But they chose not to take him at his word. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God, which is completely understandable. I mean, no honest person wants to be called a liar. I mean, even liars don't want to be called liars. And even you, uh, and when you tell someone the truth, and then they turn around and they don't believe what you're saying, that is in fact what they are calling you. So the short of what is being said is, yes, God, I believe you, but I just don't believe that you're being trustworthy. The reality is that this scenario that we're looking at is no different than what multitudes of people around us are doing. They are captives to sin. God brings them out. They come to these vast oceans that life throws their way. They can't seem to cross, and God leads them through them. They are blinded by darkness, and God guides them all along the way. He's walking ahead of them. He's shining a light in the direction that they should go, and he brings them to places where they can see his handiwork. And as they go through these situations, it should cause them to realize that God cares for them, that 
is the truth and that he is trustworthy. Some may even get to taste what it could be like if they were to give their lives to Jesus Christ. But then they get caught up with fearing the giants of the land. Thoughts like, you know, oh, I won't be able to enjoy my sins anymore. Or, oh, what are people going to say about me? I mean, you can add any other reason that would prevent a person from taking that step and trusting God. And we only have ourselves to blame. It comes down to either we believe God and take that step, or we don't. For those Israelites that did want to follow the Lord, they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years and perishing. What a sad thought to think that they were right there, but because they didn't trust God, they ended up wandering in the desert. But the others, though, they profited because they believed what they heard. And that faith caused them to be able to walk into the land that God had given them. Let's look at verse 3. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundations of the world. Here, let's uh, just look at verse 3 for a second here. You know, many cringe when they hear about God's wrath. Maybe we imagine God having an outburst over something he dislikes. Or that uh, it's unreasonable for God to be angry at something or at someone. And therein lies the problem. Because we take a human response and we try to apply it to a holy and a just God, which doesn't seem to fit with who he is. The wrath of God is not an emotional response. It's a consequence and it's a judgment. And it abides on every person because it is the payment for the debt that is owed. And by the grace of God, he is withholding his wrath in order to give everyone numerous opportunities to repent and believe the gospel. You know, we may be tempted to set certain characteristics of God aside, or we may go as far as just doing away with a particular doctrine, not realizing that when we do so, we are actually robbing God of his glory. The wrath of God is not something that we can separate from who he is. It's an extension of his righteousness. And a righteous God requires justice, otherwise he is not God. And as we come across passages that are difficult to understand, uh, we should ask the author himself to teach us, and to teach us through his word. And as we read verse 3, it spoke of his wrath, but it also spoke of a way to escape the wrath. He said that if we enter into his rest, we shall not receive his wrath. Let's look at verse 4. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. So now, the reference of the promised land is also incorporating the, pre- the reference of the creation, which is found in Genesis chapter 2. The Bible says in chapter 2, verse 2, And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That means uh, set apart and holy. 
because that in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. You know, some people think they're witty and they'll say something like, oh, I guess God was tired, that's why he needed to rest. Not at all. It simply means that after day six, God had finished the work of creating everything, and therefore nothing had to be done on day seven. You know, when I'm talking to my boys and I want them to understand that uh, what I'm saying is important, I'll often repeat it. And if it looks like they aren't completely focused, I'll repeat it again. You know, a few times I've even asked them to tell me what I had just finished saying so that, you know, we can be sure that they know what it is and that they won't forget. So just in case we didn't understand the first time and to make sure that we aren't going to forget, God just told us three times in a row that day seven is not just another day. It's not like the previous days. From day one to day six, God was creating things and creating life. But on day seven, everything was done. There was nothing left to create, including his plan to restore us. Something else that we notice is that day seven was sanctified. Remember, it's set apart. It is holy. In other words, it belongs to God. It is not our day. And he allows us to enjoy it. This day of rest is a picture of the day of salvation that he has prepared for us. There's nothing that we can possibly do to make it our own day of salvation. We can't create another day. If I can't make something out of nothing, then I definitely cannot save myself or I cannot save anyone else for that matter. And a person has to come to the understanding that there's nothing left to do because Jesus has done it all. The Bible says that salvation is of the Lord. Now let's look at verse 7. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. You know, notice that also all of these references to the day of rest are not speaking of an event in the distant future. Right? It's not referring to that point uh, when we get to the end of our life. He's saying today is the day of rest. It's like this call to action. You can be saved today and rest in Christ's finished work right away. Let's look at verse 8. For if Jesus, now when it says Jesus here, it's actually referring to Joshua, the man that came after Moses. But there's also a double meaning here that we're going to see soon enough. Okay? For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. This is a verse that some have misunderstood to me that they must do good works to be able to enter, right? The problem is that once someone has been told how to see something, it can be very difficult to see it from a different perspective. It's saying here because of unbelief. It isn't speaking of a physical exertion. It's more like, you know, you have a starting point and steps that are followed in order to get to that end result. You move forward, not backward. Israel having given the plan, God would bring them out of Egypt and he would lead them to Canaan. 
all they had to do was to trust him and follow. God would lead them right to the door, but they had to take that step of faith into Canaan because God wouldn't force them in there. The problem is that their faith was in the man up front, in Moses. And man cannot save, and thus they perished. The next generation of Israel had Joshua at the front, and Israel walked through the waters of the Jordan River and made it into the land that flowed with milk and honey. What was the difference? Well, they believed and trusted God, and in obedience they walked into Canaan. So we have the first generation of Israel, which is a picture of us following the ways of man. And just as Moses had to die in the desert, our old nature has to die as well so that we can finally enter into the promised land. Then you have the second generation of Israel, which is a picture of the new nature following after Joshua, or as we know him, Jesus. In walking through the Jordan River, which is a picture of the second birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now let's take a look at the rest of our study here. Verse 12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You know, back in the days when the sword was the main weapon of warfare, a new soldier would be put through intense training so that he would become competent with his sword. It was heavy and unforgiving, but through much training, the soldier would become stronger as a defender, and his strength would make that sword a powerful weapon. He would be able to wield this sword with power, speed, and precision. Now, I really enjoy this verse. You know, the word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. Such power. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, and it cuts right to the core. Its purpose is to kill the flesh the old flesh, and to bring about new life in Christ. The power is in the sword itself. It doesn't come from the person that carries it. The ability to wield it with strength and precision, it's not due to the skill of the soldier. In fact, the weaker the soldier realizes that they are, the more powerful that sword becomes in their hand. But sometimes we treat it like it's a stage prop or a nerf toy. You know, as it were, soft and squishy. And you know, it's nice to look at it, but it has no real power. So what we have to do is we have to be like Israel. You know, remember when they were led by Joshua around Jericho? They didn't know how the walls would come down. They just knew that God had the power. And that he would be the one to do it. All they had to do was blow the trumpet. And when Joshua gave the order, they were to shout. You know, a person can have a hard exterior, and the word of God will get right in there. They may not like it. They may possibly argue against it. But the fact remains that their conscience will bear witness to it. And they're going to have to make a decision. And that decision could be that they could choose to be like Rahab, and let the word of God speak to them and save them, or they can perish with Jericho. But ultimately, the choice to make is theirs. 
one of the powerful works that the Holy Spirit uh, is doing is to bring this book to life in our hearts and into our minds to demonstrate the power of God through it, which brings joy. And we look forward to meet with God as we open up the Bible and study its pages. But we cannot claim to have faith in the Jesus of the Bible if we haven't been changed at our core and if we don't believe that the Bible is actually His word. Because in order for a person to be redeemed, there are two important details that must be combined in order to bring about the event of salvation. One part is hearing and truly listening to the gospel. I say listening because many times you can be hearing but not really uh, interested or not truly paying attention. The other part is to fully believe the gospel message and to allow it to penetrate our heart and our soul, causing us to change direction and follow the living God. Otherwise, the wrath of God abides on us. But with that, God would rather that a person would not have to receive the consequence of that wrath. The Bible says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I mean, think of it. Isn't his word amazing? I mean, this book, it can cut you with surgical precision. It can restore a broken heart. And in its pages, we actually find the words of life. Think of how God could be using this very moment that we are living in and how the situation with this pandemic uh, can be the very thing that God is using to set someone free. Imagine what it will be like for them to find freedom in their captivity. And that just blows me away. And with that, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for loving us, Lord, beyond measure, for bringing us through the wilderness of life and into this place of rest. Thank you for feeding us, sustaining us with your word, and Father, as you orchestrate your wonderful plan, allow us the opportunity to be used as your instruments, Lord, to share the truth so that we can see your word tear down these walls and set the captives free. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.